Well, let me welcome you to the book of Malachi. We're going to be spending the next seven weeks in Malachi. Uh, It's going to coincide with Lent as we enter into Lent next week. Uh, So before we commence, I figure a brief introduction is in order. Who is Malachi? What is Malachi all about? Uh, The first sentence of Malachi reads, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi, or Malachi, the Italian prophet, uh, was a prophet of, of Israel. And his name, it means my messenger. Malachi was a messenger from God with a message on behalf of God to the people of God. He heard from God and he spoke authoritative words to God's people to form them. And he speaks to Israel uh, and he prophesies around the years uh, 500 to 450 BC. In other words, Malachi is a very old book. uh, And it it, it actually ends the canon of the Old Testament. It's It's a pivotal book. And during this time, during the time that Malachi was prophesying, Israel had been through the ringer. Uh, Their collective memory as a nation was just dizzying. Uh, Over and over and over as a nation, they had been unfaithful to God. And God would send them prophets. God would send them warnings. God would continue to try to call them back to himself, but they refused. And after many attempts, God sent them into exile by the hands of the Babylonians. And Israel spent 70 years in exile. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, he releases them from exile. He sends them back home. And even though they they end up back home, back in the land, they're still under the power of another nation. So during their time, during this time uh, of post-exilic life, the people have returned home, but they haven't returned to God. They look around and they think, stuff still isn't the way that it used to be. Things don't look Uh, the way that God promised, Uh, where's the peace? Where's the shalom? Where's the justice? Where's the Messiah of the everlasting kingdom? Which is why the people in the book of Malachi ask a lot of questions. How have you loved us? How have we despised your name? Why does God not accept our offerings? How have we wearied God? How shall we return How have we spoken against you? You see, uh, the exile didn't only create distance between Israel and their land, but it seems that it only created more distance between Israel and their God. And like any relationship, before this relationship between Israel and God can be fully reconciled and restored, there are some issues that need to be dealt with. There needs to be some channels of communication, and God feels the same way too. There are issues that God needs to deal with Israel. There are things he wants to address. And yet, for everything that God wants to say to Israel about their sin and about their unfaithfulness, the first thing out of the lips of God in the book of Malachi is a reaffirmation of his love for them. Before any issue is ever addressed, God reminds Israel that he loves them. So today in Malachi uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we will see that God loves us with an inexhaustible love. And yet, like Israel, we tend to respond in doubt, in questioning, how have you loved us, Lord? And God in his grace, because he's a God of love, he engages us in those questions. He engages us in the tension and the wonder. And he responds. So this morning, we're going to break this passage down into three sections. First, we're going to look at what it is to question God. And then we're going to look at what it is to know God. And then lastly, we're going to look at how God brings us out of the wicked country. 
So open your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Throughout history, God has loved Israel. And you need to know, there is nothing so special about Israel that they somehow warranted God's love. The scriptures actually say it wasn't because they were special. It wasn't because they were a great nation. It wasn't because they were so holy. They were actually a stubborn and rebellious people, according to God. God loved Israel simply because God chose to love Israel. I've loved you, says the Lord. But what's their response? Verse 2, how have you loved us? The first time I told Julia, I think I'm falling in love with you, she hesitated. And she said to me, I just messed it up, didn't I? She's looking at me. I said, I'm falling in love with you. And she said, I think I'm falling in love with you. Just devastated me. (laughs) You see, Julia, she had never been in love. Um, She didn't know if she was in love with me. She was trying to figure that out uh, because she'd never experienced being in love before. But for Israel, they're not uh, just unsure if they love God uh, because they're now questioning uh, Does God even love them? They've they've known his love. They've experienced his love. They've heard stories about his love. But does he love them now? And the question, it's so telling. It shows that their circumstances seem to be telling them a different message. They look around. They look at the things that are going on and they say, how? How have you loved us, God? Sure, they've come home from exile, but they've been exiled. Imagine that, sent away from your home, stripped of the place that you love, uh, families broken apart. Try to imagine that. And then try to imagine you come back home and people tell you of how God has delivered you and how God's bringing you back to your land. And you hear stories of how good and faithful God is, but you look around and it seems like God isn't interested at all. You look at the temple, the place that you're supposed to encounter the presence of God, and it's still in disrepair. You look for a king that God's supposedly supposed to provide, and he's not to be found. You look for justice, but you're still under the reign of another nation. Surely, the people of Israel are looking at their circumstances, and they're saying to themselves, if God loves us, things would be different. When we start to look at our circumstances, when we start to question God, skepticism kicks in. We start asking questions. How have you loved us? And if we're sensitive to what Israel's asking here, it's not so much that they're asking a question, but they're making an accusation, aren't they? You haven't loved us. All of us, most of us at least, know what it's like to be in a circumstance with someone where uh, something happens and all of a sudden you question whether that person loves you at all. Uh, When I was much younger because of having asthma, I was in and out of the hospital a lot. And uh, I got a lot of needles and vaccinations Uh, And I didn't find this to be the best use of my time. Uh, It wasn't my favorite thing. And I developed quite a phobia of needles. Um, And actually, when I called my mom to get the details of this story right, because I want to make sure I'm telling it honestly, she said, well, wait, which time are you talking about? Uh, My fear of needles was that bad. And so my mom, knowing that I hated needles this much, she made me an offer. She said, Alistair, if you behave, I will buy you a G.I. Joe. Now, G.I. Joes, they were quite fashionable at the time, and I felt like this was a fair wager. 
So I said, all right. And later that day, we, we head to the doctors and we get in the waiting room and it's a little scary. And then I have to walk down this hall and it's, it's white and it, there's these lights. And then I'm in a room and I'm starting, like my palms are sweating. I'm getting a little nervous. And then the nurse comes in with the needle. And I, th I think to myself, like, G.I. Joe. But then I look at the needle. And I think, G.I. Joe. And then I, I look at the needle. And I'm like, G.I. Joe, you can do it. And then all I could see was the needle. And I just lost it. It took four nurses to hold me down and a doctor to give me the injection. But I thought to myself, you know what, Alistair? You held your cool. You know, no one lost an ear. Everything went okay. And so later I asked my mom, like, when are we going to go to the store and get me that G.I. Joe? And I will never forget the look of disbelief that washed over my mom. Like, you are not getting that G.I. Joe. And I went on a tirade. I trusted you. I went through the needle. You promised me a G.I. Joe. And then, of course, I said the epic kid, kid statement. I thought you loved me. <laughs> the circumstances, they made me question my mom's love for me. To this day, my mom and I still have radically different ideas of what behaving in that situation should have entailed. But there's a point uh, to be drawn from this. Uh, sometimes things happen. Uh, we don't get the toy. Someone betrays us. A relationship uh, doesn't end the way that we had hoped. And we start to question whether that person loved us at all. And God is not exempt from this for us. Uh, you didn't get the promotion again. You lose your job again. You've been holding out, but now your house is going into foreclosure. Maybe it's, it's relational. The one that you thought was the one is no longer the one. Or maybe you're wondering if you'll find someone ever at all. Will there ever be a one? Maybe you're seeing your kids walk away from the faith. Uh, maybe you're in a place of life where you're just exhausted. There's this little creature attached to you that does not leave you alone for 24 hours a day. People call it a baby and you just don't get a break and it seems like your prayers are going unanswered. I have heard this is how women feel. Um, maybe, maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's, it's a long-term illness that you have been praying, you've been going to the doctors and it's just not getting better. Maybe it's a bad experience in church. You've got this spiritual hangover. People, like these people in the name of Christ, hurt you. Whatever it is, you look at these circumstances and uh, you start to ask God questions. Why did things turn out this way? Why aren't you answering me? What's the point of all of this? Don't you even care? And sometimes... We hear no answer. Sometimes it's just silence, the hum of white noise. And sometimes our questions turn into accusations. Where are you? I thought you loved me. I thought you were faithful. And over time, these accusations, they actually turn into conclusions. God, you don't care about me. If you loved me, things would be different. You obviously don't love me. We can empathize then with the people of Israel. We get it. They don't believe that God loves them because of what they've been through and because of what their lives currently look like. But in turn, they've withheld their love from God. They felt no need to center their lives around God. They've returned home, but they haven't returned to God. Yet even when 
Israel asks God a very hurtful question. How have you loved us? Even when they've come to misinformed conclusions about God's love for them, God still engages them. He still answers. He still speaks. He reaffirms his love. And this should be encouraging to all of us, no matter what circumstances you're facing, no matter how angry you may be towards God, there is no question that is out of bounds. We see this over and over in the Psalms. The psalmist asks very difficult uh, questions to God. Look at Psalm 10. Uh, Why do you hide yourself, God? Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? Or, Or statements, look away from me that I may smile again. Psalm 39. Or Psalm 89, where is your steadfast love? Psalm 137, how shall we sing the Lord's song? Then we see it here in Malachi, how have you loved us? We can ask God the question, no matter how ugly or uncomfortable we think it may be. And even if the question um, is an accusation, we can still make it. God will answer. God will engage because he loves us. Israel, they ask a very difficult question and he responds. Look at verse 2 and 3. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, Esau is Jacob's brother. Um, Israel, their nation, they would see Esau and Jacob as their patriarchs in in short and they would know that they were twin brothers and that Jacob was the younger and Esau was the hairy older one and they named him Esau, which means hairy. It's a bad name choice, but they'd say yes. Esau was Jacob's brother. We know this. And then God says, yet I have loved Jacob. Esau, I have hated. Let's be honest. This seems like a really weird way to affirm your love for someone. If Julia said, tell me all the ways that you've loved me. And I said, well, I've loved you, but Annie, your little sister, I've hated. I don't think that would score me any brownie points. If I said to Julia, I have loved you, but I have hated every other woman because they're yucky. Again, like this doesn't seem the the go-to way to affirm your love. Um, God says, Esau, I have hated. How is that comforting at all? For many of us, if not all of us, it's passages like this that make us seriously question God's love. Some, some might go as far to say we find statements like this disgusting. What is this all about? It's essential uh, to know that when God uses these terms, love and hate, uh, it's not the same as our emotions uh, of love and hate. We can't read our own definitions of the word into the text. Uh, scholars across the board, I read a ton of commentaries on this this week, they agree that this is a Hebraic idiom. Uh, a way of expressing how God has chosen one person over another. Not hatred then in the emotional sense. We also need to know this isn't about uh, individuals either per se. Jacob and Esau represent nations. Jacob um, represents the nation of Israel. They would have had the northern part of the land. And and Esau represents the nation of Edom. They would have been south of Israel. Um, And in a very way, these two nations are, are siblings. They They can trace their origin back to the story of of Jacob and Esau, but they are two nations. And Malachi here is reminding Israel that God has chosen them. That God has elected Israel to play a major role in his purposes within the world. Leslie Newbegin 
uh, was a missionary, a New Testament scholar. He puts it brilliantly. Uh, To be chosen, to be elect, uh, it does not mean that the elect are the saved and the rest are the lost. To be elect means to be incorporated into God's mission to the world, to be the bearer of God's saving purpose for the whole world, to be the sign and the agent of the first fruit of his blessed kingdom, which is for all. In regards to Israel's election, God loves them. And for reasons only known to God, he did not choose Edom. To put it more harshly, he rejected Edom. And it's a mystery to us why he chose Israel. We simply do not know that is who God chose for his purposes in the world. That's the mystery of love. But with all of that being said, the main thing at play when God says, I have loved Jacob and I've hated Esau, is a recent situation between Israel and Edom. It's a, it's a tension between these two nations. You see, when Israel went into exile, when the Babylonians came and took them out of their land, Edom joined in. The scriptures tell us that Edom not only joined in, they rejoiced over it. They boasted over Israel's ruin. And now uh, Israel's returned home. They're seeing Jerusalem reestablished. And Edom, their city got destroyed too eventually. But they're looking. Israel, they're getting reestablished. Jerusalem's getting reestablished. Why don't we rebuild our walls? But look at what God says in verses 3 and 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I'll tear down. They'll be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Why is God acting so harshly towards Edom? The wicked country, the people that God is angry with forever. It's a grave sin to attack the people of God. They are setting themselves against the people that God loves. If you insult Julia, you insult me, we we get this. Uh, If you insult uh, someone's family, like you've insulted them, even if you, you didn't categorize them in that people group. God's affections are upon Israel. And when Edom betrayed Israel in this way, they set themselves against God. So then, how does hearing Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, how does that reassure Israel of God's love for them? How is this a love letter to them? Uh, What would they hear God saying? Well, first they would hear God saying, you weren't any more deserving of my love than Esau. In fact, Esau was the firstborn. Technically, he was more deserving of my blessing. Yet I chose you for my purposes in the world. My love for you is unprecedented. And I chose you before Jacob had done anything good or evil. I chose you while Jacob was still in the womb. My love for you is unconditional. I was not forced or coerced. I set my love upon you. My love is free. And Israel, they needed this reminder of their roots, of how God has loved them, because exile messed with them. They began to believe that God only wanted to judge them. And what they missed was that although exile was a consequence for their sin, it was, it was not absent of God's love. That even in love, God sent them to exile. He couldn't allow them to continue recklessly living the way they were living. He couldn't allow them to continue uh, running to things that he knew was destroying them. So he sent them into exile, and, and Israel seemed to forget 
the wisdom of their own Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 3.12. The Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. Israel had forgot that even exile could be used by God for their good. That God loved them even in exile. But they came to their own conclusions because of exile. They came to their own conclusions when they came back to the land. It didn't seem like God loved them. And and when we come to our own conclusions about how God feels towards us or, or how God should act towards us, we actually put ourselves above God. We actually sit in the judgment seat and say, God, you owe me an explanation. God, I know how you should act better than you do. And in doing this, Israel somehow missed that exile is over. They somehow took for granted that they're back in the land. And although things don't look the way that they could, that God is not finished with them yet. And they've stopped being faithful. And they've missed that even when a relationship is struggling, you remain faithful and you work it out. But Israel, they cut off all of their love towards God. They started living for themselves. They returned home, but they didn't return to God, which is why God brings up this whole Jacob and Esau stuff. He wants Israel to know that no matter what they've been through, that no matter what their circumstances look like, he loves them. You see, when God says, I have loved you, it's in the perfect tense. It denotes a love that happened in the past. It denotes a love that's happening in the present. It denotes a love that will happen in the future. Essentially, God is saying, I have loved you. I love you. I will always love you. Let's remember, this is the first thing that God wants to convey to his people through the prophet Malachi. This is the first thing out of his lips. I have loved you. There are a lot of things God is going to address with his people after this statement. But you need to know, God wants us to see his challenges in our lives, not as commands upon us that we somehow have to keep to earn his love or to be acceptable before him, but that he loves us, period. And that it's from a place of knowing that we're loved by God that we can move forward and be challenged by God in other areas. God's love always precedes any claim upon our lives to change. It comes with a promise too. Look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you will say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Israel will take comfort in God once again as they see God is faithful yet again. God doesn't want Israel just to remember how he's loved them. He doesn't just want to take them on a tour of his history with them. He wants them to see in the present that he hasn't stopped loving them, that he is fighting their enemies, that he is protecting them, that he is still faithful to the covenant even when they weren't faithful to him. And he says, your own eyes will see it. In other words, God's love isn't just an intellectual exercise. It's not something he wants us just to theoretically know. He wants us to have a a heartfelt conviction from witnessing his love in action. He wants our, our lives to experience and know his love and not just see it theoretically, not just remind ourselves of it, but to know it. But I think we got to ask a question. How do we as a people, how do we as the church, take comfort in these words to Israel? God loves Israel. 
Because uh, especially to my knowledge, this is a room full of non-Jews. This is a room full of Gentiles, uh, which means we are more uh, in this text like the Edomites than we are the Israelites. So are we destined to be in the wicked country forever? If, um, if God loves the chosen, are we the unchosen? We can take comfort because if we understand Israel's election properly, they were chosen for the sake of the world. It was through Israel, it was through that nation that God brought Jesus Christ into creation. That was his plan from the beginning. That's why he chose them. That was the promise given to Abraham where it all began. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 5, 6 through 10. While we were weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? What's beautiful about this passage is that Paul is writing to Gentiles and to Jews in Rome, Edomites and Israelites. And look at how both groups of people are described. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, the entire world has been recategorized. Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the one loved by God. Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus is the inheritor of the promises. Jesus is the one that God has set his love upon and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it's because of this that God reconciles the world to himself through his son. That God reconciles both Gentile and Jew, Edomite and Israelite, You and me, it's through Christ that everyone can come out of the wicked country. Here's where we take comfort. If you're doubting, uh, if you're doubting that God even loves you, that he even could love you, uh, this text reminds us that no one could ever earn or merit or deserve God's love, but that God has chosen to love you because he does. He loves the weak. He loves the ungodly. He loves the sinner. He loves his enemies. And if you think you need to get your life all together, if you need to reach some level of perfection or some better level of faithfulness before God will love you, before you'll be acceptable in his sight, you're missing it. God loves Israel in the midst of all their problems. He loves them before they change. He loves them as they are. God does not love some future version of yourself that you're yet to attain. God loves you as you are here today in this room. How can we trust that? Christ died for us so that we would not be forsaken or destroyed or exiled or left in the wicked country forever, separated from God. Christ died so that we would not have to bear God's wrath, Paul says. Christ died for us because God loves us. Christ died so that we might be set right with God, that we might have an unbroken stream of God's love targeted towards us. But like Israel, God doesn't want us to just 
theoretically know this love. He wants us to experience this love. He wants us to know this love in a deep and personal way. This is why Paul says in Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You know that song, Jesus Loves Me? Come on, you guys know the song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes? We're tracking? All right, you're still awake? We're almost done, I promise. Uh, we all know it, we've all heard it, we've all sung it, and, and some of us, we know these ideas, God loves me. Right? You can quote the verses, John 3, 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Uh, you know these verses, but sometimes it seems like it's just knowledge and not a life-changing reality. Uh, Julia, in her head and in her her heart, she knows God loves her. Um, She knows the scriptures. She's heard it from others. She's heard it from me. She's seen God be good to her. But a couple of years ago, um, she realized that she had never really asked God if he loved her specifically. Not that she's just caught up in this category of people he loves, but her. Does he love her? And so she started asking. Every day she just asked a simple question. Jesus, do you love me? And it wasn't a demand. It wasn't accusatory. It, was, um, it didn't have a time limit. She just wanted to hear from Jesus. And she wanted to hear from him about her, about how he felt towards her. And not too many days into praying that, um, she was reading the Gospels and she had this moment, this very strong impression, words that she says were not her own, came to her. I died so that I could be with you forever. And those words mattered to Julia in a unique way. Somehow God spoke to her that she knew that Christ's death on the cross is not theoretical knowledge out there, but it is personal knowledge for her. That Christ died for the world, but he also died for Julia Stern. He also died for Alistair. He also died for every name in this room. Here's the thing, I, I can talk about the cross until I'm blue in the face. I can tell you stories of people's lives of being transformed because of what Jesus did on the cross. I can tell you how much God loves you. But you need to ask him for yourself. You need to ask him, God, do you love me? Not as, a, as an accusation, but a willingness to hear his answer. I don't know what you're facing. I'll I'll be honest about that. I don't know why you might find it hard to believe that God could love you or that God even loves you. And you might be in a place where you're seriously questioning God because of your circumstances. And I want to remind you, it is okay to have tough, uncomfortable questions for God. You are allowed to make accusations to him. You are allowed to, to say, God, where are you? This doesn't seem right. God welcomes that sort of conversation. But if if we really trust in Christ, then we have to take Paul's promise in Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work for their good. All things, good things, terrible things, even exile, even death on a cross. So whatever conclusions you've drawn about how God feels towards you, whatever accusations you have, whatever questions you feel the need to ask God, I'm suggesting that you put them on hold for a moment and ask a different question. Simply ask God, do you love me? Because if 
God loves you. And if you know that in your core, it's from that place that you can start working through the questions and the accusations and the conclusions. And what you'll find is because God loves you specifically, he is happy to work through those issues with you. God not only wants you to hear about his love, he wants you to experience it. That's what's going on in Malachi here. God doesn't just want Israel to remember that he's loved them. He wants them to know in the moment, even when things seem dire, even when things don't look the way they should, that he loves them. As we enter into Lent, starting on Wednesday, I can think of no better question than that to frame our Lenten journey together as a community. Whatever things we need to look at in our lives and remove for a season so that we can create space to seek God, whether that's putting questions that we're already asking on hold or whether that's putting activities we do on hold so that we can create time and space to ask God, do you love me? That's what I want to call us together as we enter into Lent. And as a community, let's discover just how profound God's love is on the cross, not just theoretically, but for each and every single one of us in this room.